You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's Adult Sunday School class. So here we are on the last lesson of our Be Awake, Not Woke series. And um, I've enjoyed this little mini-series with us all. As I recall, I think we started it maybe the week before we moved here. So that was like in October. Uh, so that was October, November, December, January, February. A little bit longer than I thought. I thought it'd be about a three months. So maybe well, we probably had a, we definitely had a few breaks in there, especially December. We took several weeks off to do other fun things. But but here we are, we're on our last one. And uh, I realized if I were to add, add, you know, if I were to do this again, I might add one other topic. I, uh, I won't. Um, uh, I won't do it today, but I thought a topic maybe I could have added is a, uh, is a chapter, a lesson on, on bigotry. Bigotry. Uh, you know, the woke folks talk a lot about others, including supposedly Christians, as being people who hate. And uh, I think it becomes pretty clear that a lot of the woke treatment of Christians uh, as we hold to Christian views and, and Christian convictions, really are hateful against Christians. I, I just think that's that's uh, pretty hard to, to escape conclusion. And um, there actually are things that the Bible tells us we should hate, um, but uh, we can still do it at the same time uh, in a way of love, uh, speaking truth in love. And uh, there's much for us to be speaking truth in love, and that doesn't necessarily mean we have to be unkind, uncharitable, mean-spirited uh, when we we point out important truths. So there could be a whole topic just on, on a lesson on, on that and looking at Bible passages that speak to love and hate and sort of the way to get our head around it. Um, but that's maybe for another time I do this. Uh, today we're going to have a conclusion uh, uh, lesson, concluding thoughts. And uh, I mentioned that I would bring in a, a touch of eschatology in, in some of these concluding thoughts. And uh, this is the touch of eschatology I want to give, uh, give you. And I'll, I'll give you a, a, big, a big phrase first, and I'll give you a simpler phrase. Uh, the big phrase, semi-realized eschatology. Yeah, some of you love it when I give big phrases, other of you are like, probably, probably the opposite. Uh, but semi-realized eschatology, fancier, fancier way of saying, now what, what I'll say next, the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. We're talking kingdom come. The Lord's returning. The Lord is coming again. And when he comes, he's going to usher in his kingdom. And there is an already component to how his kingdom has come. An already component to, to the benefits of, the, of that coming of his kingdom. He inaugurated the coming of his kingdom at the cross, which is a death blow to Satan. But there's a not yet component. And there's a lot of wonderful things that will happen when he comes that we do not yet experience. And the already not yet as some hopeful way as we begin to conclude our thinking on, on some of the woke concerns, basically to say, while we inter- interact with some of these woke concerns and even acknowledge some of the things that, that, that we would agree with them should be things that should be fixed in our society, um, even though we may have different approaches for how to solve some of those things, uh, we have to have a bit of a realization that, that while we can make, make a real difference, we can strive to make a real difference in this world, um, the ultimate solution for a lot of the things we're talking about won't come until Christ returns. And so some of that already not yet dynamic I want to have us think about, um, let's first look at a couple passages that sort of establish the already and the not yet as, I, as I'm getting us to think about these things. 
Turn with me to John 16, 33. John 16, 33. I think we need someone named John to read John 16, 33. What do you guys think? Yeah. So John, if you could read John 16, 33 for us. Amen. So when we become a Christian, the real change in our heart life takes place. And as you've seen other people become Christian, maybe you've noticed just a lot of joy that often comes with that, uh, a new sense of peace that comes with that, sometimes a great spirit of optimism that comes with that. But we have to remind ourselves that it does not mean that when you become a Christian, you'll never have any problems ever again. I wish that were the case, but in fact, Jesus here says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And we have to remind ourselves that while becoming a Christian radically changes our life and, and gives us uh, uh, forgiveness of sins and we're being you know, declared right in God's sight, we have a hope, of, of a living hope of everlasting life um, in this world. We yet will have ways we endure troubles. And I'd say that's true for all humans. And there's a sense in which it's especially true for Christians. And this passage is a reminder to us. Want to look one more similar idea? Turn over to Luke 21. Luke 21, 9. You don't have a Luke. So, Marlon, would you read Luke 21, 9 through 13? And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up into the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Good. So here at Jesus' earthly ministry, he's beginning to tell them about what the future holds for them. And there are some aspects here of things that are common to mankind, like earthquakes, and famine, pestilence. It's not just Christians who experience those things nor are Christians generally exempted from experiencing those things. But then there are these other things like, like they will lay hand on you specifically for being a Christian. And they'll, they'll bring you before courts and throw you into prison. And, and, and yet, to see that this becomes an opportunity to be a witness for Christ. And so um, when we think of the already and the not yet, yeah, already, as a Christian, you have a hope of eternal life. Already, you have forgiveness of sins. Already, you are a new creation. Already, you bear Jesus' name. Uh, but part of the already is that um, here and now, we still have troubles. Maybe that's what getting to the not yet. Uh, you know, the not yet is that, you know, Christ is king, right? So if he's king, 
we might superficially think, oh, if he's king, that means all his subjects will never have any problems. But that's probably not yet in terms of the fullness of his kingship being realized here on earth, that here and now, for a time, he's allowed some continued raging of the world against his people, against his subjects. And so how can we view that? Well, um, if we didn't have some of these passages, we might think it's strange that a Christian would bear such trouble from the world, but he told us these things, so we wouldn't think it's strange. We might feel demoralized when these things happen, but he told us this is an opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity, right? This is an opportunity for us to do gospel witness, gospel ministry, and certainly in our day, right, it's an opportunity as we, in this particular topic, with regard to those who are woke that might hate on us, try to persecute us, try to silence us, uh, it's an opportunity for us to continue to bear witness to Christ and to bring God's truth to the world. So, the compliment now, I want to turn over to Revelation 21. Be a cool name, Revelation. Is it's only name or keep Revelation? That's a cool name. Zoe, would you like to name Revelation? No. <laughs> Revelation uh, 21. Um, uh, Dean, would you read verses 1 through 8? 1 through 8. 1 through 8. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. <clears throat> and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who comes, he who overcomes, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Good. So this is the pair of the already and the not yet that we're talking about here right now, right? The, the not yet. This is some of the not yet. Right? The not yet is when Christ returns, he will usher us into the age to come where he will somehow renew, make anew the heavens and the earth, and there will be this 
idea of heaven come down to earth and the new Jerusalem come down on earth and God will tabernacle amongst us. There won't be, as he goes on to say later on here, that there won't be a temple because the Lord God and the Lamb will be the temple. The idea of temple is God dwelling with man. And here, there won't be any more pain, no more sorrow, no more troubles, no more sin. All of the things of this cursed world and all the troubles will be gone away. And so, again, remember the, the, the series that we've been going through, this idea of, of the woke culture. You know, what does it mean for someone who would identify as woke? To be woke in their mindset is they think that they have sort of become awakened to these problems in society that they believe they have good ideas on how to solve them. Finally, they sort of become enlightened to all the world's problems and they've got solutions to fix them. And of course, we've analyzed that over the course of our several month mini-series here. Some of the concerns, we said we can share with you on those concerns, but some of your solutions aren't the way the Bible would have us to approach them. Of course, some of their concerns are things we can't you know, they, they say things are broken that aren't actually broken. And so we have to analyze that as we've been doing that. And um, we have this idea now before us as sort of an, an, in a concluding thought. I want us to be able to think about the fact that, that yes, there are troubles in this world. And I'm not saying that we don't try to address those troubles, but I do think we have to have sort of a realistic big picture idea as well. That as we try to work on some of these problems, um, the actual solution, the ultimate solution, won't come until Christ returns. And let me give you an example of how we ought to still try to solve problems, even though we know that the ultimate solution won't uh, be until glory. Um, there's a reference to taking care of the poor in the Old Testament. That text talks about uh, taking care of the poor, but acknowledging you'll always have the poor among you. And, and uh, what does uh, Paul get told when he's approved by the other pillars of the faith to be doing his gospel ministry, his spiritual ministry of preaching Christ? They tell him, but remember the poor. But remember the poor. And in glory, guess what? There won't be poor people anymore. We'll all be wealthy in the Lord, right? We'll all be full, right? There's not going to be some of us who are kind of off in the corner starving, you know, while the rest of us are feasting in glory. You know, that's not going to be a problem in glory anymore. And, and, and I don't think we'll solve all of the problems of poverty in this life. But Paul, it can still be told, while you're doing the gospel ministry, still remember the poor. And so, again, um, the ultimate solution in terms of dealing with the concerns in this society that are legitimate um, the ultimate solution is going to come in glory, but of course we can and should uh, look for ways that while we're here uh, that we contribute uh, to the good of society. And what I thought we could do for a moment is just think about that from an institutional standpoint. You know, what should some of these institutions be striving to do? And this sort of bookends, dovetails where we started in our little mini-series now back in October-ish or so. Uh, remember, we mentioned that a lot of the woke concerns were that the institutions themselves were systemically flawed, systemically biased, and therefore needed to be radically uh, addressed in order to solve what they thought was 
a concern of people in power um, oppressing people who are under their authority. And of course, we've analyzed that. We've, we've tried to think more holistically than, than they have maybe on that and realize that there's sin in both areas that need to be addressed, both people in power and people under power. Uh, but you know, just sort of as we conclude, let's just think some of these institutions in the Bible, what, what do we see uh, them, that they're supposed to be doing? So um, let's start with, with the church, for example. If you're thinking New Covenant Church, where might be a good mandate that sort of sort of gives a big picture of what the church typically is supposed to be doing here and now in this present age in the New Covenant? Well, where might you think to go? Preach the gospel here at the Great Commission. There you go. So the Great Commission passage, right? Matthew 28. Why don't you guys turn there? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. <coughs> Jeff, when you get there, why don't you read it for us? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, you know, we have especially a spiritual mission as a church. I'm talking not about Christians individually. I'll talk about Christians individually in a moment. Uh, but as an institution of the church, our, our primary mission is a spiritual one, a spiritual mission. And um, we have a, a special sword to use on that spiritual mission, a spiritual sword. And that's the word God, of course. And so the church is preparing people for the new creation. It's helping them to wait in faith while they live in this current fallen creation. And so there's a gospel mission. There's a, uh, so evangelism, discipleship, and conducting worship, um, and the sort of oversight and shepherding uh, that the church does for those in, in, in the church. Uh, that's the church's, you know, broadly speaking mandate. Um, we had a, one of our uh, OBC uh, fathers uh, in the faith, uh, Dr. Alan Strange, came out and did the men's conference recently. And uh, he, he spoke on, I remember if you heard the announcements or if you're there, but uh, the, the uh, uh, topic was the spirituality of the church. Spirituality of the church. And the church particularly has a spiritual uh, mission. Uh, I'm going to read you a little excerpt from our form of government in the OPC. I think it's helpful in this form of government. This is uh, chapter three. It says, uh, speaking of church, it says all church power is wholly moral or spiritual. No church officers or judicatories possess any civil jurisdiction. They may not inflict any civil penalties, nor may they seek the, hour, the aid of the civil power in the exercise of their jurisdiction, further than may be necessary for civil protection and security. It goes on, it says all church power is only ministerial and declarative, for the Holy Scriptures are the only infallible rule of faith and practice. No church judicatory may presume to bind the conscience by making laws on the basis of its own authority. All decisions should be founded upon uh, the work of God. And then I'll read one other excerpt. This talks about the work of the church. The work of the church in fellowship with and obedience to Christ is divine worship, mutual edification, and gospel witness. The means appointed by Christ through which the church does this work 
includes the confession of the name of Christ before men, the exercise of fellowship and encouraging one another, the reading, teaching, and preaching of the Word of God, praying, singing, fasting, administering baptism, the Lord's Supper, collecting and distributing offerings, showing mercy, exercising discipline, and blessing the people. Why am I reading that? Just a sort of big picture idea. What's the church as the church supposed to be focused on? And even the things that were just read there, you can think of ways that, um, particularly during the Middle Ages, uh, there was a lot of uh, not keeping to the things that were just mentioned there. Um, you know, there's cases where uh, the church has made use of even the civil government to use the sword to enforce its teachings. Um, and uh, uh, the OPC has thought that's not, not uh, what the Lord would have us uh, to do. Um, so there's a spiritual mission, and as an institution, if there are problems on the leadership side, we don't throw this out, we look to deal with it, and look to, to improve it, and fix it. And again, the woke you know, solutions often on institutional issues is to say that the, the system in and of itself is broken. And we should throw it out. And I, I, I'd say it's not so much that the system is broken in a lot of these things, it's that the people are broken in a lot of these things and are abusing the system. And if the Word of God tells us, here's how to structure the system of the church, then let's work on becoming better at that. And we're needed exercising discipline to remove leaders who are not uh, being faithful to what they're supposed to do. So I want to do the same thing now in terms of the state mandate. Classic passage, turn over Romans 13, 3 and 4. Romans 13, 3 and 4. Maybe one quick word on the church before yeah, you transition. <clears throat> I was impressed with the book, um, the Benedict Option, which you're probably aware of. And Rod Dreher, uh, who's an Orthodox Christian, wrote the book, created quite a controversy because, in essence, he basically said that the culture is so far decayed that the most viable ministry and the most fruitful ministry for the church is to create a radiant counterculture, which is so beautiful and so healthy that as the world system sinks into this latter-day lawlessness, that people will see it and they will realize. I like this scripture where Jesus likened the church to a city on a hill. In ancient times, you didn't have all the lights, you know, in the valley and roads, and the only place you'd see light was at the top of the mountain. And so I've been taken with that as the woke culture progresses and make marches through the institutions, it seems to me that the church has a, a great opportunity, especially the education of children, to create an alternative education and try to develop uh, a support system for the families. Um, I'm not saying abandon the world around us. I'm not saying that we don't go in and work there. But I would say at this stage, the lion's share of our energy should be to build a really healthy Christian culture. Isaiah 60 says, your light has shown you Latter-day Zion and 
and the nations will stream into it because it's so bright and beautiful. End of sermonette. <laughs> the uh, thought that comes to my mind as I hear your thoughts is uh, Van Til talked about the antithesis between Christians and, and, and the world, and and he was saying that in the context of apologetics, right? So so we can have, I think, which is your point, we can have that antithesis. We can be who we are, and that's different than the world, and that doesn't mean that we don't, that we have to, I think sometimes I fear like some some of the more, say, Anabaptist traditions have sort of gone off over here, and we'll just be our little conclave and stay away from the world because the world's bad. We need to be in but not of the world, and yeah, that will involve developing a Christian culture within the church and then by extension within the families and individuals within the church. So I'll touch on that a little more as we get into families too. So I think I think I, I, I'm i liking the way you're thinking there. Uh, so who's got Romans 13? Zoe, do you have Romans 13, 3 and 4? Make not aware to your Good. So here again, as we're sort of in a concluding session here, I won't delve into super depth here, but you know, broadly speaking, the civil government has a scope of authority. It tends to particularly deal with with neighbor to neighbor type of issues, but. You know, they, they commend the good and they they punish the evil, and they have a physical sword uh, to to execute, uh, execute administer justice as well as to execute literally um, at times. Um, and uh, uh, I think something to remind ourselves in in terms of the already and the not yet, the civil governments of this world have a way in which that they are passing away, that I go back to that church institution, that's not true for the church institution. The church exists really as the kingdom of heaven here on earth, a manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. So when Christ returns, it, the church goes from being a, a in but not of the world, uh, sort of a, a city on a hill light sort of to the world, to being, the thing, whereas these kingdoms of man, uh, they are serving a purpose, or at least they're supposed to be serving a purpose, meaning they are servants of God, whether they do it in the way they should, whether they recognize it or not, uh, they are here and are meant to be for a good purpose, uh, but, but it is a reminder that they are only here for a time until Christ uh, returns. Really what we might think of the kingdoms of this world, the different civil governments, and again, that would mean like the United States or Russia or Ukraine or you know England or whatever, right? These different civil governments are supposed to be a, a, a sort of a, an expression of God's common grace that provides order in society until kingdom come in its fullness. And that gives us then in the theoretical ideal situation, a place that we can do what we're supposed to do as Christians, which include having an opportunity to share Christ. Mm -hmm. If there's no common grace of civil governments and it's just anarchy, I think it will be more difficult to do what we're supposed to do as the church. And so we can see it as a good thing, which is why we can look to try to make 
those states, those civil governments, uh, be what they're supposed to be. And, and if they have some of those concerns of authorities who are abusing their authority, if in fact we look at it and, and agree that this particular authority is abusing their particular authority, then yeah, we should try to make it better. We should try to get that person out and put somebody in there who's going to be faithful to that trust of, of a leadership, which is now sort of keeping church and state in mind. I want to talk about individuals in it because um, as individuals, Christians really live with a sort of foot in each kingdom. What do I mean by that? A Christian is a member in Christ church. And where's our citizenship? In heaven. But I also know I personally have a citizenship in the United States and I get to vote and I get, you know, so both are true, right? But not both are on the same level either, right? If I had a choice, you can only be a citizen of heaven or a citizen of the United States, which would you choose? I hope you don't have to think about it. <laughs> Right, uh, but reality is right now we have sort of a foot in each, and that's something distinct again to this already not yet time frame. Turn over to John eighteen thirty six. John eighteen thirty six for us. John's never going to want to come to class again here. So, this is an important concept to remind us, right, that, that Christians have the Lord Jesus Christ as their king, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, they would have fought to make sure Jesus wasn't put to death by the kingdoms of this world. And as it is, his kingdom is not of this world. It is heavenly, spiritual, eschatological. And the already not yet idea, it is coming and it will be of this world in the new creation. It will come from heaven to earth and be established. And there won't be uh, people who are objecting to it. And we see that language of that future predicted, and I'll just read it for you, Revelation 11, 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So that will come. But until that day, we now as individual Christians have a membership in the church, a manifestation of the kingdom of God, and what the church is supposed to be doing, we're a servant to that end, but we're also here as citizens in this world, uh, in you know various uh, 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 subjection to various civil governments, and especially in a place like the United States, where we're part of a participatory government. Right. There's a sense in which we're in charge too, and we better make sure we're doing our part <laughs> to serve God with the trust He's given us in that regard too, and so. Um, this sort of dual citizenship idea, if you can think of it that sense, um, tells us that while we wait for glory to come, we still have things to be doing here and now. And yes, 
There's a sense in which everything we do in terms of serving the kingdoms of this world and this age have a sort of temporary aspect, have a sort of passing away aspect. So like that has to limit uh, how you uh, respond to certain things. Um, however, there are still plenty of things. We're going to be here until the Lord carries. And um, let's just a silly example. If your toilet is broken at home, you don't say, well, in glory, I won't need this toilet. So let's not bother fixing it. I wouldn't say that, right? Um, however, because I know this toilet is only for a time, I'm only going to invest so much in my toilet. If I knew this one toilet would be my toilet for glory, for eternity, forever, I will be continuing to make it the best toilet possible. I'll, I'll have a button where it self-cleans. It will never clog. It'll have the high flow come straight from the river of life and flush real nicely, right? I mean, if I knew that this was my toilet for glory, I'd have a, a special interest in it, right? But I have a perspective. It has a purpose and a time, and I need to, if I can, deal with it now. But I do have a sort of realistic of where I'm at ultimate uh, hope and glory. Questions so far? Uh, well, or, yeah, Dean, go ahead. Um, I love the verse in Timothy that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth in the world. And not just gospel truth, but we speak prophetically to the powers that be, and we call them up to their, to their ministry mandate to administer justice. So denominations, individuals, we can write our, our senator or our congressman and say, you know, according to Romans 13, God says you are his minister. And, and we can exhort them to do their job as a denomination, as individuals. The, the neo-Marxist movement views government as an as a oppressive instrument. And so they're, they're essentially anarchist and then globalists. They want to wipe out the United States because it's in the, the Constitution is oppressive. So I don't know. They may succeed, I don't know, God knows, but we can keep prophetically calling our leaders. No, God creates individual nations. He's given us this constitution and he wants godly leaders to administer and then we leave the results to the Lord. So yeah. that's Amen. very important. And, and part of uh, just running with that idea too, sort of some of the nuances I'm trying to bring out here when I talk church, state, and family slash individuals, sort of bringing them all together for a moment is I think the church's job well, will include that sort of prophetic ministry where they'll you know, declare things like, hey, Romans 13 says you're supposed to serve God. And, and, and you know, you need, so, so declaring truth to them from God's word in that prophetic ministry. What I'm suggesting that as an individual, you can do that plus a little bit more. What I mean by that is I would not want the church in the context of what I just said it should be doing to, to then delve into what I might call into the politics side of it, like, so therefore you should have the law, legislation say this, this, and this, and sort of get into the weeds of, uh, you know, have it this rule and that rule. But I think individually, we have our Christian convictions can speak to the same sorts of things the church can speak to, but we're also now part of this, this government that we're, we're supposed to help making better. And I think you can get into policy discussions. I think you can say, you know what, I don't think that policy has been helpful for us. I think uh, this policy would be better, and this bill would be better, and that does fit more with Christian teaching. And the cool thing is, you can have some Christians 
who have differences in some of those policy issues or pol politic aspects, and you can have good, charitable, fruitful discussions and maybe come up with an even better final policy. And so you see the kind of distinctions there I think are helpful to the to making. So, uh, the last little bit I want us to do here in our final, final uh, few minutes is a reminder of how we began in our series back in October. I gave you a wake-up call. And I read for you from Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. I'm just going to read verses 13 through 16 from Ephesians 5 again. It says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So I gave a wake-up call at the start. And the whole notion of being woke is that they think they become awakened to the problems. But Christians, according to Ephesians 5, have actually become awakened. And, and we become awakened and are called to wake up. I love a lot of the ways that Scripture brings that. You know, you know you've been uh, awoken and therefore wake up. Right? You've, you've had the light shine upon you, therefore live in the light. Right? And so we have this place we've been put in this world. And so just as a way of reminder of some of the things I said at the very beginning, I sort of reissue that call now in light of the knowledge we've gleaned hopefully over the last several months. What does some of that Christian waking up look like? You know, be awake, not woke, right? What does some of that Christian waking up look like according to Ephesians 5 there? Well, one, we need discernment. Wisdom. We need discernment. We need wisdom. What the world tells us, we have to use Christian discernment and wisdom to know what can we agree with, what can we not agree with. We need wisdom because the world's trying to indoctrinate us right now. We need wisdom. We need discernment. Second thing, we need to see how in our new birth, we have a new life. We're called to be different than the world on these matters that are before us. We're called to think differently, speak differently, act differently. Not just for difference sake, but because we know that the world doesn't think the way we think. They don't have the same convictions. And so the world's out there trying to get you to be like them. We need to be like Christ. We need to be like Christ. We need to be putting on Christ. And the world's going to chatter, 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 be like us. And we need to pray, Lord, help us to be like Christ. Help us to put on Christ daily. Um, and then we're called, according to this Ephesians passage, third thing here, to expose the darkness of the world. That's the language here, to expose the darkness of the world. What they have called woke, in other words, what they've called enlightened, we've actually seen there's much darkness and not much light in what they're advocating. And we have the light of God's word and the light that shined into our hearts. We have light that we're called to use to expose the darkness in their worldview. And again, not just to show them that they're wrong, and not just because that actually will be good for our society, but we hope that as they realize the futility of their system and the darkness of their system, that they might see the light that we have and desire to come into that same light in Christ as well. 
so that it's not just apologetics to defend our way and protect our way, but that they too would come to see the beauty of it in Christ Jesus and serve not just for apologetics, but for evangelism to help bring Christ to the world. So I hope that um, we've been reminded of a wake-up call. And while there's an already not yet aspect to everything, while we know that the final solution isn't until Christ returns, I hope us to have yet some optimism for what the Lord may do in our day. You know, I think of even the last three years, how much our society has changed, like in blinks of an eye, maybe with a with a use of some social media here and a television broadcast there. And sometimes we feel like, gosh, there's, there's no going back. But, you know, our God is greater than all that. And he may even use some social media or, 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 or a video here and there to help bring his truth. And we might be surprised in our day yet there might be a radical change. Let us be faithful and even optimistic in what the Lord will do because we know who our God is. And we know how powerful his sword of the Spirit is and his Holy Spirit. So I hope we've been encouraged in our wake-up call uh, uh, as we live already, not yet, uh, in, in light of the end. Uh, let's look forward to what God will do in our day. And I'll close this with one final scripture here, Revelation 22:20. 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the light you've shown into our hearts. Encourage us as we take these truths we've been considering and live them out in, in this world uh, until the day of the uh, world to come, the age to come, uh, that glory that we're eagerly looking forward to. Bless us until then. Keep us until then. In Jesus' name, amen.